Today's scripture comes from Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahiatub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mareos, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Buckeye, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he had asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him, and there went up also to, to Jerusalem. In the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sonny. I know that was that wasn't easy. I actually texted him yes uh, earlier this week saying, "Hey, you got some some hard names coming up, so you better practice." <laughs> but thank you, Sonny. Um, can we just pray? Can you can we pray just once more? Father, we commit this time to you. Just speak to us, and pray that would you, uh, in your mercy and grace, um, help us to not only understand your word but help us to apply to our daily lives. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I came to the U.S. in 92, and back then I was 12 years old. And living in America wasn't as fun when I first got here due to language barriers, cultural barriers. And for the first two years of my stay here, throughout elementary school and, and middle school, my nickname was Ching Chong. I mean, that's what they call me, right? With a funky outfit and a bow cut. That's just who I was. But things got eventually better. And, and I, I learned to adjust to life in America. And when I was doing that more and more, I forgot about where I came from, Korea. And it actually took me 17 years to go back to Korea, where I grew up. And in October 2019, I did go back. And it was definitely bittersweet. It was sweet in a sense that I was able to reconnect with relatives, uh, some friends. It was sweet because it was during this trip I met Shine's parents, and I got a yes out of Shine's dad to, to eventually marry her. Um, but it was bittersweet because the entire trip was too short, and I had to eventually say goodbyes uh, to the relatives, because once I came back, it will be a while until I go back to Korea and to, to spend time with them again. So it was a bittersweet homecoming for me. One of the themes that run through the book of Ezra and also Nehemiah, because both books need to be uh, read together, understood together, is homecoming. The people of Israel finally get to 
go back home after living in Babylon for 70 years. Now, you may be wondering, how did they end up in Babylon, and what were they doing in Babylon for 70 years? That's not a short time. They were punished for their covenant unfaithfulness. So Nebuchadnezzar came, and he wiped out the entire city, and he forcefully removed the people of Israel, and took the, and they were taken to Babylon as exiles, and they lived in Babylon for 70 years. And that was, that was a result of their covenant on faithfulness. They were being punished. But God had already warned them about this, but at the same time, he gave them a message of judgment and hope. Through prophet, Isaiah, uh, through prophet Jeremiah, this is mentioned in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, God did tell them, once the 70 years is up the time, I will bring you back to this land. But you must live in Babylon for 70 years, and that's your punishment. Through prophet Isaiah, God had also told the Israelites, I'm going to use a king named Cyrus, the king of Persia, and I will use him to build my city and to bring you back to this place once again. So this is the context of uh, the book of Ezra, and I wanted to share that with you so that you can better understand the backdrop of this story. I'll be raising three points uh, during this message. Point number one, bittersweet homecoming. Point number two, rebuilding the temple. Uh, point number three, rebuilding the people. So the first, uh, let's go to the uh, first point, the bittersweet homecoming. So the first six chapters of the book of Ezra is about the return of the first wave of exiles from Babylon. A guy named Zerubbabel, he ends up leading the first group of exiles back from Babylon into Jerusalem. And the first six chapters, also the focus is, yes, the homecoming, but once they get to Jerusalem, God's going to use Zerubbabel and the people who are there to rebuild the temple. And now why is this important? Because during the Old Testament time, the, the temple of God was the dwelling place of God. So they're coming back to a city that Nebuchadnezzar wiped out, and which means they need to start over. They need to rebuild their lives. And one of the first things that they will do, and as God tells them to do, is to rebuild the temple, which we'll get to. As I mentioned, God raises up a king, king of, uh, king of Persia, Cyrus, and, and through his decree, proclamation, they get to come back. This is mentioned in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the uh, Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom, and so put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whichever is among you of all his people, may, may his God be with, uh, with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So under the leadership of Zerubbabel, thanks to the decree and the proclamation of King Cyrus, which was all ordained by God, the first group of exiles, they get to go home. They get to go home. And they will participate in the very important task, this holy task of rebuilding the temple. Now, it was, an, it was a long journey back home from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
the distance was about 900 miles. Back then, they didn't have cars, they didn't have planes. They traveled by foot with children. So imagine how long it must have taken. Scholars say it took them almost four months to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. But try to put yourself in their situation. As they're traveling back, and it's a long journey back home, what do you think they were thinking? What do you, th- what do you think were uh, happening in their own hearts, the thoughts and emotions? I'm willing to bet that it was bittersweet. For the older generation, I mean, these are the people who had actually seen the temple that David had built in all its glory and splendor, but because of their foolishness and covenant unfaithfulness, now it lays in ruins. Nebuchadnezzar came. So they're going back, and they can't help but to think of the glory days of past. Now for the younger generation, they're not really familiar with this story, because some of them are actually born in Babylon. And for them, going back to Israel, uh, Jerusalem means that they're leaving their home. Because they grow, they are more um, accustomed and familiar and comfortable with the customs and the, the, the way of life in Babylon. So there's mixed emotions and thoughts of going on here, right? But once they do go back to Jerusalem, the first thing that God asks them to do is rebuild the temple. The question is why? Among so many things that they can do, why does God specifically ask them to rebuild the temple? It's, it's to make sure that, that their lives will be centered upon the word. That the word of God will be central uh, to their lives. Because the temple during those days meant the dwelling place of God. So that their lives will revolve around that. Right. So once they go back, they're, they're given this responsibility of this arduous and holy task and process of rebuilding the temple and in doing so, start rebuilding their lives. With that, let's go to the second point, rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 3. Now, I'm going to be reading a lot of passages because I want you to understand the historical context and, and it'll, it'll really help you to appreciate what God is doing in, even in, this, in the midst of all this mess. So Ezra chapter 3, the rebuilding of the altar and the temple begins. So Ezra chapter 3 verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols and to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfastness, love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, referring to the temple that David had built in its glory and splendor, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Mixed reactions here, mixed emotions. For the older generation who had personally seen and witnessed the glory and the splendor of the temple that David had built, 
they can't help but to weep. And I'm willing to bet that they're they're going back and retracing how foolish they had been. Because God had sent prophets to them to warn them, if you don't turn your hearts back to me, you will be punished. There will be judgment. And they did not listen. And that's why they ended up in Babylon for 70 years. But now by God's mercy and grace, they're back. So when they see the older generation of Israelites who personally witnessed all this, they can't help but to weep. The younger generation, they see the, the foundation of the temple being put, and they're excited. They're excited. They have, they have no recollection whatsoever of what happened in the past, but for them, this is a new beginning. New beginning, right? So they're excited. But in the midst of all this, people begin to eventually oppose this important work that they were doing, rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 4, there's opposition now. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the return, exiles were building the uh, uh, temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, uh, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' uh, houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in, in building a house to our God, for, for, uh, but we alone will build uh, to the Lord, the, the, God, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, had commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsel against them to frustrate their purpose in all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of the land uh, of Judah and Jerusalem. So they got upset that they didn't get to participate. But the, the remnant who came back were telling them, hey, this is a task that God has specifically given to us, so you cannot participate. So they got angry, jealous. So what did they do? They wrote a letter to King um, Artaxerxes and telling him, which is mentioned in the following verses, accusing him that they are rebuilding a wicked city. And these rebellious people, once you allow them to to continue this work of rebuilding the temple in this city, they're going to turn their hearts against you. So they send this letter to the king. And because of that, the work on the house of God, as, as is mentioned in verse 24, in Jerusalem was stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, chapter 5. So they were forced to stop the work of rebuilding the temple. But now comes into the scene Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, and they told the Jews, keep building. Resume this important work of rebuilding the temple. So they do. They listen to the prophets and they begin to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and supporting them. Now at that time, there was a governor named uh, Tatanai. And he, uh, this catches him off guard. And he comes up to me and says, who told you, who gave you authority to, to resume this work of rebuilding the temple? So he's upset. And to stop them for good, he actually uh, reaches out to Darius, 
and saying, King Darius, did you know, without your permission, they begin to work on the temple again? So can you please um, write another decree and then stop them so that this will not ever happen again? But notice what uh, Darius says, and this is all part of God's plan so that they can continue this rebuilding, right? Let's read from verse 7, chapter 6. Let the work, this is how Darius responded, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for, for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of, the, of this house of God. The cost to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province of, uh, from, from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifice to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. It's pretty mean. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius... Make this make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province uh, beyond the river, and and Shethar Basnai, and their associates did all the diligence with what uh, Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished the, their building by decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the, the, the reign of King Darius, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They're faced with opposition, but as you can see, God enables them, and God opens doors for them to resume this important task, this holy uh, task of rebuilding the temple, and God opens doors through which means by moving the hearts of the kings of Persia. Through Cyrus, they were, they were able to come back, but through also the decrees of Artaxerxes and Darius, they're actually given all the resources they need and protection to finish this important task. So it further goes on to show that God was with them, and God was going to make sure that the rebuilding of this temple, which was so central in rebuilding their lives now that they're back from the exile, God wanted to make sure that this will come to completion and fruition. Now let's jump to our last point, rebuilding the temple. I mean, rebuilding the people. We're going to spend our most of time here now that we have covered the, the first two points. Now Ezra finally comes into the scene. Now, Considerable time has passed since Zerubbabel brought the first wave of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and about 60 years have passed since the temple had been um, restored from ruins and, and the construction of the temple had been completed. 60 years have passed. Now, under the decree of King Artaxerxes, now Ezra is able to come back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he leads the second group of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
And here's the thing. What do you think the people were doing or had been doing by the time Ezra came to Jerusalem with the second wave of exiles who are dying to come back home where they grew up, where they have seen the glory of God? What do you think we're doing? I mean, they should have been worshiping God and living a life of covenant faithfulness. I mean, if they, if they really learned their lesson after living in Babylon for 70 years, that's a long time to reflect on the messes that you made, right? So you would think that once the temple had been uh, restored from its ruins, that that um, which symbolized God's dwelling place, but not only that, the word, which was central um, to their lives, you would think that that's what would, they would do. Make sure that the word of God is central to their lives. Make sure that their lives revolve around the temple, the dwelling place of God. But that wasn't the case when Ezra came back. When Ezra came back, they were all over the place. They were all over the place. There was no spiritual allegiance to God. Their life, they, they weren't living according to the word of God. They were just doing whatever they wanted to do, even after spending 70 years in Babylon as exiles being punished. So they go back to what they do best, the Israelites, the people of God, breaking God's heart by turning away from him, by wandering away from him, by drifting away from him. Here we go again. Some things never change, right? Let, let me briefly um, go through the history of Israel through the pages of the Old Testament uh, really quick to help you understand how much God loves his people, even though the people of Israel, they continue to break his heart over and over again. So there are two things that remain consistent throughout the Old Testament. If you, if you carefully read through the pages of Scripture as you, as you discern the life of Israel in their relationship with God, two things that remain consistent. Number one, the Israelites, they consistently remain unfaithful to God. And number two, God remains consistently faithful to them, even though they remain unfaithful. So to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, what did God do for them? I mean, the ten plagues, the people of Israel, they saw. They, 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 they were personal witnesses. They're eyewitnesses of the ten plagues and the power of God. And God eventually brings them out from the land of Egypt, and then they begin to journey through the promise, towards the promise and through the wilderness, right? But what happens in the wilderness? Instead of focusing on God's goodness and provision and faithfulness, they continue to complain, grumble. So they grumble in their, their way through the wilderness, but even then, God still remained faithful to them and provided for them. And that's one of the reasons why they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, right? That journey sh- should not have taken that long, but it's because of their unfaithfulness, their grumbling that it took them that long. Now, they eventually get to the borders of the promised land, and this is in Deuteronomy. Moses warns the younger generation of Israelites who are about to go and take possession of this land because the older, older generation do not get to go in, including Moses. So the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses pleading with them, reminding them how God had been so faithful to them up until this point. 
It pretty much tells him, this is a matter of life and death. Choose God and live. After hearing the message, they go into the promised land, and God gives them victories, and God eventually gives gives them this land that he had promised, but, but what happens? They continue to wander away. They continue to drift. They continue to turn their backs on God. Sinful rebellion, blatant idolatry. But what does God do? God has every right to wipe them out, but God doesn't because of the covenant that he had made with his people. Now come the judges. I mean, there's a a judges cycle uh, uh, embedded in the book of Judges, and I wanted to show this to you because you're going to see this cycle throughout the pages of the Old Testament. They commit sin, and they get punished, and they cry out to God, and God send them a judge. And they repent and turn their backs on God, and as long as the judge is alive, they live a life of faithfulness and obedience. But as soon as the judge dies, they go back to committing sin, turning their backs on God. I mean, this repeats throughout the books, uh, throughout the book of Judges. And you know how the book of Judges ends? The last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Something's never changed, right? Now, this sets up eventually uh, the platform for God to raise up a king. And God did. Israelites, they asked for a king, but they asked for the wrong one. Saul, he was a popular choice, but he remained disobedient, so God removes him. And then come David, who built God's kingdom, built the nation of Israel. And then came Solomon, and because of disobedience, what happened? The, king, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms, right? The, kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, which God wiped out because of their unfaithfulness. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, which had... Some good kings who, who beckoned God's people towards him, but eventually because of their unfaithfulness, they also got punished. Nebuchadnezzar comes and then destroys the city, wipes out the entire city, and then takes them into, as exiles to Babylon. And that's the, the backdrop of this entire story, right? And here's the thing. How can these Israelites who have personally witnessed with their very own eyes, and they have heard, they ate, they smelled, they touched, they felt, the tangible expressions of God's goodness all of their lives. How can they continue in sinful rebellion and blatant idolatry, right? But that's exactly what happens. Even in, 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 our, in, in this context, in the book of Ezra, even after 70 years of being punished as exiles in Babylon, they come back and they go right back to what they do best, breaking God's heart. But here's the thing, and and this is the amazing thing. Even though God's people do that, but God continues to remain faithful to them. And he will continue to remain faithful to them because of the covenant promise that he has made with his people. Now, when Ezra came back, like I said, this is 60 years after the completion of the temple. So 
they should have been living a life of holiness and obedience. Not the case. Do you know what we're doing? They were they were actually um, intermarrying and and taking wives of different uh, nations, and in doing so, um, they were living in sinful rebellion and idolatry. Now, just to say, this does not mean that you're not allowed to intermarry. That's not what this text is saying, but there's a reason why God told them do not intermarry, because the more you do, you're going to continue to be tempted, and you will eventually end up living a life of unfaithfulness. And that's the reason why God said, Keep yourselves pure away from these people. But, but Ezra 9, like this is what Ezra saw when he came back. And I, wanna, I want us to read this together. And this is actually Ezra calling out the people of Israel uh, who had been there before uh, his return with the second group of um, exiles. And here this is uh, Ezra calling them out. And this is Ezra's uh, prayer interceding on behalf of the wickedness that he has witnessed since coming back. Ezra chapter 9 after these things had, had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people, peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves, for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, check this out, the hand of the officials, the leaders, the chief men has been the foremost. Bad leaders during that time. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel praised God that there was still a small group of people who still trembled at the words of God, Right? And they joined Ezra because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles and began to pray. Gather around me and, and while I set apart until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to, to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we are kings, and our fathers, um, and our priests have been given to, into the hands of the kings of the lands, and to the sword, and to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, a favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes, and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from the end to end with their unclean, un- uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, ni- neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance for your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should not there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are just, for you are left, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our great guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Shocking, isn't it? This is the scene that Ezra enters into. They go right back to sinful rebellion, blatant idolatry, breaking God's heart with abominations for 60 years. After coming back from Babylonian captivity for 70 years, they go right back. I mean, this is mind-boggling. This is shocking. But through this, we, we do see the broken condition of the human heart. I think it's easy for us to point fingers at them and say, how can you guys do that? But I'm willing to bet that if we were there with them, we would do the exact same. We're no better than the Israelites. So this is the context in which Ezra came. Now, what was Ezra's mission? It was to teach the word of God to his people to restore the word of God into their lives so that it would be central, so that their lives would be deeply rooted in the word of God. You know, between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, I said there's about a 60-year gap, right? And during that time, God was actually preparing Ezra for this holy task of bringing his people to God teaching them the word of God, God's rules and statutes. And he, as verse 10 reminds us, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And he did this diligently. So that when time came for him to go back to Jerusalem, he'll be ready for this task. So he diligently studied and he practiced the law And because that was part of his daily living, he was ready to teach when this opportunity came. And this is the reason why God sent him to his people. Ezra, go. Restore order. Teach them my words so that they may turn their backs and once again live a life of holiness. I want to ask you guys... um, some questions, some personal questions. How are you guys doing spiritually? How is your walk with God? You know, what this passage reminds us, what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah reminds us is that, yes, it is true that they were able to accomplish rebuilding the temple. And if you read on through Nehemiah, they're able to also rebuild the wall. Of the city. So they're able to physically restore the city, the temple, the wall, physically. Now, they were able to do that. And sadly, here's the thing their hearts still lie in spiritual ruins. And this is a solemn warning, I do believe, for all of us. 
because it is possible, and get this, it is possible to participate in building and rebuilding God's kingdom in wherever God has called you without God. And get this, brothers and sisters, it is possible for you to work very hard for God while walking very far from Him. Because that was exactly what was happening during those days, days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were diligently participating in rebuilding the temple, the wall, the city. But one thing, the one important thing they forgot to do was address the spiritual ruins in their own hearts, in their own lives. See, it's so easy to hide behind all the work that you do for God's kingdom while your heart lies in spiritual ruins. That's one of the piercing messages of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So how are you doing spiritually? Perhaps you're serving in many different capacities. We're so thankful for that, your service. But how are you doing spiritually? How's your walk with God? Are you growing in grace? Are you growing in your love for God? Are you growing in your obedience to God? Have you been maturing in your faith? Have you been growing up in the gospel? And I do believe that we need to be honest with ourselves. Because for many of us, it's easy to hide behind all the good works that we do for God's kingdom, even though our heart is so far away from Jesus and our hearts still lie in spiritual ruins. I'm going to show you a picture. It's a funny picture I came across a while back, and it's a picture of a surge protector. You probably see there's something seriously wrong with that, right? Infinite power, haha. But I wonder how many of our spiritual lives look just like that. No wonder why we don't experience the transforming power of the gospel, the word. We don't experience God's power in our own lives. Even though we're doing all these things for God, we're participating in kingdom work, then the problem is we don't even realize, and we're blind to this, that we're not even plugged into the source, the main source, the power of the gospel. And I do believe that this is the wake-up call that all of us need to hear. You know, on the way to our office, and see of office in Whitestone. There's a gym uh, that I always pass by, and here's a message um, that they put out to to get people to start working out again. If it happens, yesterday you said tomorrow. I'm like, like that's so true, and then I drive by, right? <laughs> but I do believe that we, and if we are honest, this is this is exactly our, our attitude and approach when it comes to the spiritual disciplines of walking with God and, and, and living a, a life that's intentional for, for kingdom work, we'll say, I'll just do it tomorrow. I'll do it for tomorrow. When I have time, I'll do it. And we've been saying that for years. And no wonder why our lives still lie in spiritual ruins. Even though on the outside, you may look like you're doing well, but that's not the case. 
There's a book that I, I started reading with all the Oikos group leaders, which is a book called Leaders Who Last by Dave Kraft. And in this book, he talks about making sure that we find our own spiritual rhythms, these holy habits, finding that sacred place and protecting it so that we, we have um, that space where we can continually and consistently spend time with God. Spiritual discipline, spiritual formation, becoming more like Christ, it takes effort. And we need to do this on a daily day basis. Now, author uh, Dallas Willer, I think he's helpful because this is what he says regarding grace. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. We're not doing these things to earn God's love because that's already there. That's given. But it's just that if you want to become more like God, you also have to do your part. In the sense, you have to put effort into it. I've seen some of the sisters, through your Insta stories, putting up your workout routines. Or in theory, you know who you are, right? Good for you. Keep it up, right? Keep it up. Because it's not fit happens, right? It's not going to happen overnight. You got to keep at it. You need to be disciplined. Same happens to our spiritual vitality, spiritual walk with God. Find your rhythms. Find your space, the sacred space, and protect it. I mean, Shine recently called me out saying, Honey, how come I rarely see you reading the Bible at home? I was like, ouch. <laughs> and I had to explain. It's like, Hun, like, obviously there's no space for me at home uh, to be alone. Um, Ava will leave me alone. <laughs> um, and, and so I had to explain. Because so, I think um, that sacred space and rhythm looks very different for everybody, so you need to find it. For me, I utilize um, my drives. When I'm driving to meet, when I'm driving uh, to go meet someone, when I'm driving to run errands, that's my alone time. But that's my alone time with God. I'm listening to either sermons or listening to the audio Bible, and that's the space that I protect so that I'm walking with God to make sure that I'm close to God, so that I'm not just faking it. On the outside, look like I'm doing a lot of ministry, but I don't want to end up being that guy working very hard, but walking very far from Jesus, right? And if we're not careful, we could all end up in that place. And that's the warning that we see from the book of Ezra, right? So find your sacred place, protect it, and keep going back, right? And at the same, at the same time, when we look at this story, um, that is unfolding in, in the book of Ezra and also Nehemiah. What is so comforting to see that God remains faithful to his people. I mean, it's unbelievable and mind-boggling and shocking, but yet he remains faithful to his people, right? And I think we tend to think that, and, and this tendency becomes even more intensified as we struggle spiritually, that unless we hold tightly to God, cling desperately to God that we're going to lose him. So we do our best to cling, to hold on. And maybe for some of you, this is, this is what your spiritual walk with God looks like. You're desperately trying to hold on because you feel like the moment you let go, God's going to walk out on you, right? There's a pressure on you. You got to hold on. But have you ever wondered, perhaps it's always been the other way around, 
Because when God gets hold of you, He does not let go. In your struggle, you may be tempted to let go, and you may actually end up letting go, but God never, ever lets go. And this is the promise of the gospel, right? I think Pastor Scotty Smith, his helpful here, there's only one love that will never let us go. I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Don't concentrate on holding on, but being held. Let that sink in. Being held in the loving and mighty arms of God. And our Father began a good work in us that He will complete. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest. We constantly find ourselves letting go in our frustration, in our anger, in our discouragement. But God doesn't let go. So focus on being held in His loving arms. And let's be honest, if I take it further, I mean, we are constantly playing this perpetual hide-and-seek with God. And we are not the ones seeking. We are the ones wandering away, turning our backs backs on Him. We are the ones running away and hiding from God. But as always, God is the one who seeks, pursues, and finds us in the place of our mess and brokenness and chaos. And we can try to, to run away from God, but we can never, ever outrun God. And this is love, this is mercy, and this is grace. And brothers and sisters, this Christian life, this journey of faith, you can't do it alone. This is why we need each other to remind us of this amazing Truth, this amazing love of God. And, and I love it when Pastor Scott Smith, I, he, I think he put it best, the importance of community, this is what he writes. Every Christian needs a gospel posse, the brothers and sisters that you roll with, that will stir your affections for God, and that challenge you to, to get rid of all those things that, that rob you of this joy and love and affections for God. So do you have one? If not, get plugged in to a community. Make sure you have people who's keeping you accountable because this is the danger. And Pastor Paul, uh, the author Paul Tribb in, in his book, Broken Down, huh, this is what he writes. Please read along with me. Very important. In this fallen world where falsehood wars against the truth and reality battles with delusion, it is hard to remember who I am. When I look into the perfect mirror of the Word of God, I see myself accurately and I'm confronted with my true identity, the sinner yet child of grace. But there are other less reliable mirrors I look into as well. Sometimes I see myself in the carnival mirror of culture and its twisted image of what a successful human being looks like. Sometimes I see myself in the distorted mirror of my own self-righteousness, portraying me as more godly and mature than I actually am. Sometimes I see myself in the crazy funhouse mirror, which is the overly positive appraise of well-intentioned friends. Sometimes I see myself in the crack mirror of daily home life, where God, where uh, what God emphasizes is important is not always practiced. Each of these mirrors offers a representation of me, but which crucial and unbelievable distortions that can drive me to make um, 
unbelievable sinful and harmful decisions. So with the tendency to identify, uh, to identity distortion within the danger of it without, I need help remembering who I am. If I receive that help, I can live with a more cogent awareness of sin and grace with radically different results than I, if I seek to live this inherently communitarian life on my own. I will only know myself accurately when I know myself in biblical community. My walk with God really is a community project. We need each other. Look what happened. The history of Israel. Consistently unfaithful. We need each other, right? But at the same time, when we do come together, we need to be intentional. Are we just hanging out? Or are we really helping each other grow in our love for God and really turn our hearts towards Him? Proverbs 27.5, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. And here's a question I want to ask you guys as I close. Pastor Garrett Kell, who ministers down in Alexandria, Virginia, he said, at his church, uh, they regularly encourage members to develop these intentionally intrusive relationships with one another for the sake of accountability, and now this kind of accountability can make us uncomfortable at times, but we rarely grow in holiness when we are comfortable. So he has these sets of questions uh, that he has been using with his members. I wanted to just share this to make you think twice about how we do community. Are we doing this? Or do you have people? Who does this to you? Who are you developing intentionally intrusive relationships with? Who knows everything about you? Do you run from soul-exposing relationships? If so, Why? What are you hiding? What damage will be done to your soul if you keep running? Who are you helping to follow Jesus in a similar manner? I really pray and hope that as we journey together in faith and CF, and as we do our best to continue to come together, that we will do so with intentionality, to call out sin for what it is, to help each other, love God more passionately, to help each other, to eliminate things that continue to get in the way of following Jesus wholeheartedly so that we can together, as we learn to love Jesus more individually and corporately, that we can continue to participate in kingdom work without worrying about our hearts being so far away from him, just looking good on the outside, but yet our hearts lie in spiritual ruins. And we will struggle with this continually. But take comfort knowing that we do have a Savior who loves us. The work that he began in our lives, he will finish. And he will never, ever let go of you, even when you let go. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us with love that is unconditional. Love that is um, unchanging. And Father, we do confess that we wander away from you and we break your heart again and again and again, and yet you remain faithful to us in pursuing us. Father, would you help us to um, be diligent in studying your word and help us to find that sacred space where we can continue to commune with you and at the same time with the brothers and sisters that you have blessed us with and to be part of this community. May we... Um, as, as we come together, help us be more intentional about 
pushing each other closer and closer to you so that as we continue to partake in kingdom work, that we will do so with joy, with our hearts in tune with you. God, thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.